Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast December of 2018. In her new book, Look Both Ways, Catherine Coles, University of Utah professor and former poet laureate of Utah, takes on the subject of her maternal grandparents, Miriam and Walter Link of Wisconsin. Their marriage was 1927. Through journals and correspondence that Miriam passed on to uh, Catherine Coles, Although uh, Miriam and Walter were both trained as geologists, upon their marriage, only, Wal- only Walter went to work for Standard Oil, leaving uh, him uh, to exploratory surveys of places like Cuba, South America, Indonesia. Miriam, meanwhile, was left to a domestic life and a growing dissatisfaction. And Catherine Coles, as she traced this story, worked on this book, ultimately re- realized that she was becoming part of the story. Uh, she writes, uh, one of the things that really opened up for me was understanding the frustrations that my mother, my grandmother, my great-grandmother faced as brilliant, gifted, totally thwarted women, what it must have been like for them, and to be myself exerting my own freedom now, and even now feeling the resistance that the culture puts up against a woman exerting the kind of freedom I was insisting upon. The book is Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. Catherine Coles is author of two novels, six collections of poems, the fifth of which, The Earth is Not Flat, was written under the auspices of the National Science Foundation's Antarctic Artists and Writers Program. She's a recipient of grants from the NEA and NEH, Guggenheim Foundation, and she's a distinguished professor of English at University of Utah. She joins us from KCPW Studios in downtown Salt Lake City. Catherine Coles, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Tom. It's always nice to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice as well. Very interesting book. By the way, thanks to KCBW. I don't want to mention that. Great folks there for, for hosting you there. Uh, a double journey along my grandmother's uh, far-flung uh, path. What, uh, what documents uh, did your grandmother gift you? She uh, left me, and there was a little bit of a um, complication around this process as well, but she left me decades worth of letters and journals that had passed uh, between her and her mother, my great-grandmother Mandy, and also um, she had kept letters from Walter, uh, Miriam's husband, to Mandy. He wrote her almost as often as Miriam did, especially when he was unhappy with the marriage. He, You could really tell that he was because of the uptick in uh, correspondence that passed between him and his mother-in-law. Interesting. Um, uh, by the way, there, there's a scene in the book I think would resonate with a lot of families. Your grandmother is older, living in Florida. Um, your mother finally, finally gets permission <laughs> to uh, to declutter the house. Yeah. Uh, to, <laughs> to tell, tell me about that. Well, I have it open in front of me if you want me to uh, read yes, it. Yes, that'd be great. Okay, great. It's uh, This is chapter two. Uh, it's called Interlude What I Have of Her. From Sarasota, she sends me an embroidered shawl, a kimono, velvet evening purses, suede gloves, elbow length, the color of our eyes, or the aquamarine in her last wedding set, the stone huge on my hand. Mandy's Burmese sapphire and diamond ring mailed loose in an envelope, a batik wyang figures intricate on a deep blue ground, something my mother wanted for herself as perhaps she wanted all of it. Now, in her 80s, Joan tells me her jewelry will come to me, every piece, and not her granddaughters. I will have the choice of everything as she did not, as I never thought to give her. Miriam's wedding dress, which would not have fit my mother, who inherited Walter's height. She sends them all while she is still alive, while she can see me in them, in the body like hers, even smaller than it looks, because it is straight and solid and broad-shouldered, its blue gaze a reflection of her own. Having her eyes means not that I see like her, but that I look like her. Mm. Having at last gotten Miriam's permission to clear out the Sarasota house, my mother throws away pots with broken handles, bathing caps festooned with rotting rubber flowers, empty jars, every check Miriam's mother Mandy, dead by then for 35 years, ever wrote. She boxes magazines and blenders with burned-out motors for goodwill, but before my uncles can load them into the car, my grandmother is hauling them back inside. At night, my mother lies in bed waiting for Miriam to shut off her lamp, then rises to cram papers into trash bags and sneak them out to the curb with no regard for history, reading, nothing. 
In the morning, she finds Miriam in her nightgown on the front lawn, the papers strewn around her. <laughs> so it's a, it's a nocturnal battle. It is a yeah. nocturnal battle. What happens by day is undone by night. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the end, I think your mother did throw away. Uh, I don't know how what a percentage of the papers you only ended up with with a fraction, right? Well, actually, I think uh, so. She had thrown away my great grandmother's checks, which my grandmother still had. Every check my great grandmother had ever written, my grandmother had. But um, it turned out that even though she'd just been dumping boxes without ever having looked at them, the letters were still there and the photographs mm. most if not all of the photographs were still there and the journals were still there and so the things that i most wanted i got the other records are important and valuable probably to historians but what i really wanted was my grandmother's own words about her experience mm. I, I was struck by the the, the every check that uh, mandy the your great-grandmother <laughs> wrote i have a running conversation with my wife i i, I tend to keep things including checks old yeah. checks that i've that, that i wrote and uh, and she my wife wonders well what <laughs> What's that going to do? So, well, maybe people might be interested, you know, there might be a, a window into our lives. Yeah, you would be surprised. Historical societies uh, are very interested in these kinds of documents that um, give a sense of what everyday life was like in a particular moment. So your grandmother uh, specifically chose you to receive these these letters, these documents, did she? Well, what happened was my mother called me up um, from Florida during this process, and she you know, was offering all these objects to me, most of which I now have, uh, having never taken them out of the boxes. They were shipped to me in, in my storage room waiting for my uh, nieces probably also not to want to use them, but uh, you know, little teacups and tiny cordial glasses and that kind of thing. Uh, and she said, I'm going to send these to you. And I said, what I really want um, are these documents. And I had spent many years asking my grandmother about her life and getting her to label photographs whenever I visited, that kind of thing. Um, and that's when my mom said, oh, I think we have thrown all that away. And I said, well, whatever is left with my heart in my throat, please um, send those to me. And she said, well, we have to ask Miriam's permission. And she, and she did. And my grandmother's response was to say, after a long pause, well, you know I fell in love a few times, don't you, to my mother. And then the documents were retained and shipped. And I took that as permission um, from my grandmother that she permitted the documents to come to me, understanding fully who I was and what I was likely to do with them. Hmm. What do you think she wanted uh, to the you know the, I don't know the finished product to be or, or of her life to, uh, to to be revealed or because you say she was she was somewhat opaque when you would be with her and you would say yeah. well, what about this what about that and she would just kind of smile far away look in her <laughs> eyes right yeah I mean I, I think that there was a, a lot that she didn't want necessarily to be revealed in her lifetime. And in fact, she wrote in her journal, there's always the chance that a diary might fall into hostile hands before one's death. Might not children or family be disillusioned if they read some of the pages? Um, and uh, I think that before one's death is pretty a pretty important moment in, in her writing that statement. The fact that she allowed them to come, and I didn't do anything with them until after she was gone, until after she'd passed away. And I think that in that moment of passing them, she really did trust me um, to do something worthwhile with them. And as I read through them, I became increasingly aware. I'd always known she had wanted to be a poet. She'd wanted to be a writer. She'd actually gone a lot farther down that path than I had ever thought, and it turned out that my grandfather had wanted to be a writer, too, had had that ambition. And so as I was working with the materials, I finally decided, well, let's let them come as fully as possible into my book. And they're really extensively quoted, and in fact, their words are really woven into my words um, throughout the book in a way that I hope makes them and their point of view extremely present. What did you, uh, I'm sure you learned a lot of things, I was going to ask you, what did you learn of your grandmother through through these uh, diaries and other other documents? What, what stands out to you the most that you, that you learned? 
Well, there were things that had always always been suspected. Um, it had been suspected among her children that she'd had various romances, including with a very famous early Dutch pilot who, uh, it turns out, taught her to fly an airplane in Indonesia. I don't think that that was known before I went through through these materials. But maybe the most significant um, revelation was the debunking of a family myth that um, that. Miriam's sister, Tony, had married her husband, uh, Bert, because Mandy had met him in Indonesia uh, visiting Miriam and had proposed that he come to Milwaukee and meet Tony with the idea that, that there would be a romance. And what actually happened was that my grandmother, Miriam, Tony's sister, had had an affair with Bert. And then in order to keep him close, but not dangerously so, had herself sent him back to Milwaukee to to marry Tony, which he did almost immediately upon arrival. And you can imagine how well that turned out. But the family myth was of this great romance between Bert and Tony, and the great romance was actually happening elsewhere. So that's uh, negotiating the family politics, the family myth, I guess, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. And even the words you you say in your in your preface, uh, I've questioned the truthfulness of, of of what your grandmother wrote, but you uh, you have to na- navigate that. Yeah, and in fact, my grandmother her- herself wrote what a liar a diary is, and um, as I was reading, I think it's this incident with Bert and Tony that really opened my eyes to this, that um, Miriam was actually leaving things out of the diary. She suspected that her husband was reading the diary, so first she left things out, and then she actually started to put things in that would steer him, I think, in the wrong direction. And because of that, it took me a a very long time. I actually felt very stupid when I realized what was going on that I had been missing all along the way. But she was really using the diary to manipulate the truth. And and of course, the other thing we know is that we all lie to ourselves as well. And so there were many um, moments in the journal when I had a sense that she was trying on or performing different selves that would later be discarded. Uh, I wonder, uh, maybe I could have you read the, the first couple of stanzas of your grandmother's poem. Oh, sure. Uh, because oh, there's a passage early in the book where where you you recognize that in her mind, she's not fully allowing herself as a woman, as a young woman, to, to, to dream. And maybe, hopefully, the way a young woman today might be able to dream. I'll ask you about that, but... Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, a little bit more. So this is a poem that um, my grandmother wrote uh, in, during her first year of college, which she um, started when she was 16 years old. So this is 1923 at the University of Wisconsin. And the poem is called Adventuring. It's one of the first things that I encountered as I was going through the documents. And she used to send me her poems when I was in college, things that she'd written years earlier And I didn't really know how to respond to them, but this is the first one that I thought, well, I'm just going to apply the same kind of thinking or analysis to this that I would apply to a poem if I got it from a student. Adventuring. To plow the foaming waters of the boundless Spanish main, to plunge amid the swelter of a pelting tropic rain, to wade thigh deep against the racing waters of a stream, All these would be fulfillment of my highest golden dream. To hear the billows swishing as they're riven by the bow, with their crests like smoke a-flying, lighting dark green depths below. To feel the rush and smother of a million airy bubbles. Oh, the dash and vigorous joy of life makes a fellow lose his troubles. So uh, you say you don't know whether she was troubled by that. You're troubled by that. tell Tell us why. I'm troubled by it because in the first stanza, she's speaking in the first person. She says, all these would be fulfillment of my highest golden dream. And by the time we get to the end of the second stanza, she's not only shifted out of the first person, that ambition for self, uh, into the, the third person. She's actually made that other person not female, but male. 
and she's wrecked the rhythm of the poem in order to accomplish this. She could have said, oh, the dash and vigorous, vigorous joy of life make me lose my troubles. Instead, she adds an extra beat to that line, make a fellow lose his troubles, and really sort of messes up the poem in order to create the actual figure that she can imagine setting out on this adventure, which turns out to be not a 16-year-old girl. Uh, yeah, she say, you say she unders her dream in, in a boy's skin. Yeah. Um, so that, this is 1920s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, how much do you think things have changed now in, in our time? It, yeah, I think that things have changed actually quite a bit. Um, I feel quite a lot of freedom, obviously, to go to Antarctica, right, to do this, that, and the other kind of thing that I want to do. But at the same time, I think that there's still a fair amount of cultural pushback, uh, approbation, questioning about these kinds of of choices. And I actually worked with an editor for a while on this book who um, we parted ways shortly after he said to me, uh, I don't really understand why you would keep leaving your husband to go do these things when you know that he misses you and worries about you when you go. Hmm. And that's a theme in the book. Right? Yeah, that's a theme. That's, in the that's book. a theme in the book. Um, and I want to talk about that. Um, so, Miriam and Walter Link were married in 1927. Mm-hmm. They were both trained as geologists. Right. right. And so I want to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk about this. Uh, Walter goes to work for Standard Oil, has a lot of adventures. Miriam, because of, the, I guess, the pressures, the conventions, uh, she stays home. And has different kinds of adventures. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> um, and frustrations. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's talk about that when we come back. The book is uh, Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. Catherine Coles joins us from KCBW Studios in Salt Lake City. More following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Cafe Ibis Gallery Deli at 52 Federal Avenue in Logan, featuring triple certified coffee, espresso bar, and offering made-to-order lunch Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 3 p.m. Information at CafeIbis.com. UPR is everywhere you are. With classical music programming, news and information statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the online app. UPR is only a push of the button away. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast December of 2018. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Our guest today is former Utah Poet Laureate, University of Utah professor Catherine Coles. Latest book is Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. And uh, we are grateful you're listening. Uh, Catherine Coles, I wonder, uh, I was going to make reference to this, so it might be good to have you read this, just the first couple of paragraphs of the of chapter one. Yeah, sure. I'll just take one second to get here. Um, this uh, chapter one is called A Self-Divided, and it begins um, in 1923 when Miriam is a freshman at the University of Wisconsin. Walter Link is absolutely a man. It is a passing reference in my grandmother's diary, but I make a note. In the fall of 1923, Miriam Magdalene Walliger was a 16-year-old freshman at the University of Wisconsin. She'd met the man in question who would become my grandfather at the Lutheran church supper. About Tom, my my grandfather's first rival, she wrote, there is someone who feels like I do, to whom I can tell my strange ideas and have them appreciated. And he wants to read my poems, a line we've all heard. In spring of 24, about Al, he has a dandy blue canoe with all the equipment one could think of, including cooking utensils, not to mention a little fliver, small like her and dashing, blue to match her eyes. He loved that she drove like a man, much too fast. Sensibility, gear, manhood, Her words are my window and my mirror. Packing for my flight to Wisconsin, my first trip to their, my, my first trip in their footsteps, archives, I say to my husband, Chris, who likes to know where I'm going and why. I imagine the girl who will become my grandmother looking for a combustion engine and a full tank, for someone to pick her up and move her, for transport. Mm. 
So your grandfather, uh, to be, did have some rivals. Uh, sensibility, gear, manhood. Those were the <laughs> <laughs> kind of the, the placeholders for you know the the key points about those those young men. Yeah. Uh, tell me about the the young uh, Miriam Wolliger. Uh, she she's apparently brilliant. Um, t- tell me about her. She's she's brilliant. She ended up speaking um, four languages fluently, uh, including Malay, which you know not many um, Americans speak. Uh, she played the violin and the piano very well. She was a competitive swimmer, and even though she was even smaller than I am, and I'm five three, she was uh, uh, on the basketball team for the university. Um, she was a hiker, a canoer, a fisher person, a skater. Um, she was incredibly physically active and and very strong for her size. Um, she was in many ways fearless, although also full as as people are, and especially young people of, of self-doubt and, and of questioning. And she was somebody who was really, I think from the very beginning, struggling to figure out how she was going to be able to find her way and express herself in a world that had very uh, specific ideas about um, the range of activity for a woman. So, um, as we mentioned before the break, both Miriam and Walter were trained as geologists. Mm-hmm. D- did they? Did she expect that she would be able to go out in the field and and work? Did Did she have that hope? She did have that hope. She was one of the first two women to graduate with a degree in geology from the University of Wisconsin, which has a very famous geology program. My mother also got a degree um, from Wisconsin in geology, as did both of my uncles. Um, so she uh, she um, worked very hard to prove herself. As she and Walter were courting, they fantasized together in their letters, and I'm assuming also in person, though I don't, I'm not privy to those conversations, but they, they fantasized together about working in the field, about being in the field together. And uh, he indulged her ideas and participated in them because he was in love, and I think the idea of, of setting out together was just as appealing to him as it was to her. But... I'm also fairly convinced that he, there was a piece of him that understood, um, given the man's world that he had already entered and um, was navigating, I think he understood that this actually wasn't really likely to happen. And she continued uh, to believe that it would happen until it didn't. Mm. So they, um, they, they go out in the field. He goes to work for Standard Oil. Uh, at a certain point, she she I guess she bumps up against this barrier, right? I, I'm I'm not welcome out here in the yeah. Field. She she set sail with him shortly after their uh, wedding to go to Colombia. He was one of the people who first mapped the geology of the high Andes between Colombia and Venezuela, uh, and did a lot of searching for oil there. Um, they were on the ship together with his boss, who also uh, for a while indulged her idea that she would go out into the field. And she actually offered to volunteer. She offered to go into the field and prove herself without being paid. She just wanted to do it. And then um, so at first he said, oh, sure, sounds like a great idea. And then he started slowly to make restrictions. Well, you can come on this part of the excursion, but this other part will be too dangerous, et cetera, et cetera. And then finally, by the time they had arrived in Bogota, uh, he had shut down the idea altogether. What? Uh, how does she deal with that? Well, she kind of cooled her heels in Bogota for a little while. She was not a big fan of Bogota, and eventually, um, rather than face the dangers of the field with her husband and his boss um, together, she embarked alone on a very wild and dangerous trip by boat down the Magdalena River uh, and then eventually went back home to Wisconsin to wait for him. There's a, maybe bring this in at this point, this is later, much later in the book, Uh, you write a poignant line, a woman's body, not her mind was all her currency and power. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's right. And I actually, I believe that Walter admired her mind 
uh, at least at the beginning. But he moved very quickly into the view of women as being of use only in very specific situations. So he he moved from being open, I think because he was in love, to this idea that they could be out there adventuring together to essentially what my mother experienced uh, as a view of women as essentially useless because they couldn't go out physically and, and do what men uh, could go out physically and do. And my mother's goal in life, I think, for many years was to prove her father wrong, was to prove herself worthy of his admiration and respect and love. She got two PhDs in the process of trying to do that. And uh, I am not sure, I can't speak for her, I'm not sure she ever felt that she achieved in regard to him what she wanted to. There's a picture of your mother in the book, young mm-hmm. young Joan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it says, uh, <laughs> page 250, I don't know if you can get there, um, job seekers. She's She has a hammer. Uh, she's uh, simulating pounding a rock. And yes. I, I'll just read the, the caption here. Geology runs in the family of Miss Joan Link, a senior from Havana, Cuba. Her father is a petroleum geologist. Her mother is was one of the first women geology majors to be graduated from Wisconsin. She hopes to take graduate work in mineralogy, although she says that women uh, geologists are under definite handicaps. Mm-hmm. So she, uh, your mother did, uh, I guess... She did have this spur, right, apparently, as you say, to, to mm-hmm. prove her father wrong. Yeah. Was she able to, I guess, I'm sure there were barriers for her as well. There were barriers for her. She, um, and I, one of the things I love about that picture I'm just going to mention is that she looks almost like um, the kind of calendar pinup that would be uh, posted in a garage, right, with the... Um, the beautiful blonde holding a power tool, right? <laughs> or, yeah, it does or look something like, like that. that. Yeah. She, it has that kind of um, glow to it, and it's definitely the feature of the photograph is not so much that she's holding a, a pickaxe, but that she is so beautiful and um, curled and prepared and lipsticked, right, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, she graduated at the top of her class at the University of Wisconsin, Came, got married, came with my father to Utah, where she um, graduated uh, again at the top with a master's degree and then uh, went on to get a PhD um, and graduated again at the top of her class and then discovered that if she wanted to work in labs in academia, she would be paid approximately half what a man would be paid and offered not the best work. She did that for a while and then got tired of it and decided to go back and get a PhD in psychology, which is a complete change of direction. And even then, even though as far as credentials went, she was the number one applicant, they actually put her behind 10 men to receive fellowship funding to enter that program. And she wouldn't actually have received a fellowship if one of them hadn't decided to go somewhere else. So it was in geology that she faced that kind of discrimination and also in psychology. And she was actually told by the head of the psychology program that she was taking a slot away from a man who would need to support a family. Mm. What bringing that forward to today, what do you think? Uh, some, some, I'm guessing some barriers still exist, uh, similar barriers. What uh, would you say about today? Um, I, I think, at least in my department at the university, we're actually very, we try to be very aware of um of being open and available to female applicants. And in fact, uh, in the graduate program where I teach, which uh, is the English department, so admittedly that's not chemical engineering or something like that, we are well over 50% female in terms of graduate students. And our faculty is now at about 40%. That's something that takes time, but we're very conscious of it. Uh, I do think that Um, in the hard sciences especially, they are not making the same kind of progress. And I understand that this is not only something that happens at the point of admission, application and admission to the program or to be on the faculty, but it's a pipeline uh, issue that, that women are 
girls are still not being prepared at a young age to think of themselves in these kinds of positions. It happens basically around the time of junior high school that they start girls who are talented and good at math and science nonetheless start getting funneled into other kinds of directions or um, being pressured by society to assume that those are not proper expressions of their gifts. Uh, how do we uh, how do we address those yeah. <laughs> problems? Do you think? Yeah, I I, th- I actually think that that's a really difficult kind of question to think of, and um, I know, for example, that there uh, are programs at the university that are really designed to try to bring talented girls from high school uh, into college with a support group that will help them weather the kinds of cultural assumptions that happen when young men young women come into science and i know that young women in that group have walked into physics classrooms within the last 20 years uh, and um, been sneered at by the men sitting next to them who said oh are you here to get your your mrs right these assumptions that they're not going to be able to do as well that they're there for the wrong reasons are still really present. And I've also seen letters of recommendation from high school teachers and high school counselors that instead of uh, praising the intellect and talent of a young woman applying to one of these programs will praise them for being obedient and you know, the idea and well-groomed and saying that they will never do anything to embarrass their families, the kind of thing that you would never see in a letter of recommendation to an academic program if that letter were recommending a young man. And so I do think that there are all of these sorts of cultural pressures and assumptions that are really invisible and that we all internalize um, that can prevent people from moving in certain kinds of directions. I think that there's a lot of work being done now on the high school and junior high school levels, but there's more yet, obviously, to be done, including just on a day-to-day basis, all of us questioning the assumptions that we're bringing to the table. The book is called Look Both Ways, and the the subtitle, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. We're talking with Catherine Coles. Uh, So at some point... You realize, okay, I'm I'm studying my grandmother's journals and her letters. Uh, you realize, well, I'm becoming part of this story, right? And, and you just, in fact, you 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 know, you, you move back and forth. You kind of, uh, in the same sentence, you'll have your grandmother's words in italics, and and then your your words, your thoughts. Uh, why did you decide to do that? Well, part of it, it goes back to this idea that they. I realized as I was going how seriously both of them had taken their writing, and I didn't want to just use their writing and submerge it. I wanted to give them as much space to express themselves in their own words in the book as I possibly could. Um, But at the same time, I was moving from making this a book only about them to understanding the ways in which I was deeply implicated, and my mother too, in this story and the ways in which this was really a story about about, um, generations of women, about the ways in which we experience ourselves within a family context. And... um, I was creating a kind of record of my journey through their texts, trying to figure out what was true and what wasn't true, and wanting actually not to just decide what was true and put it out there as if it was absolutely, unquestionably true, but instead to create that sense of uncertainty as part of the drama of the story. And then eventually, I decided I also needed to go and experience some of these places where they had lived, these far-flung places. And um, it's hard, actually, to do that and then to bring that experience into the text without admitting that this is what you're doing. Yeah. uh, After a break, I want to have you tell me about uh, some of these travels. You you say the physical experience of being there was important to your process to understanding, you know, her, her place yeah, and her experiences. Uh, you also uh, say in the book you, you examine the delicate balance that must exist in a successful marriage and a feminist life. That's intriguing yeah. to me. I'll uh, have you talk about that when we come back. I'm hoping that uh, my addition to the book and yours match up in pages. Uh, just to alert you, I'd, I'd like you to, to read uh, from the top of page 22. 
you're uh, talking about your grandmother when she's older in, in Florida. And uh, then also at the end of uh, chapter 21. So have you prepared uh, those? So I uh, think our page is done, actually. Okay. Um, I think 20 mu- 21, beginning, and Miriam. Uh, let me see here, page. Uh-huh. Anyway, well, uh, let's go to break, and okay. we will uh, we'll figure that out. I'll have you read a couple of those passages. Uh, Catherine Coles is with us. Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path is the book. More following this break. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, U.S. Senator Cory Booker is an optimist because he knows how far we've already come. My parents never hesitated to show me the wretchedness, the bigotry, the darkness of American life. But is raw optimism enough to create the bipartisanship that Booker seeks? That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Thursday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast December of 2018. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Catherine Coles, former Utah Poet Laureate. Uh, she is a distinguished professor of English at Utah's, uh, U- University of Utah. And uh, the latest book is Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. And she joins us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. We're uh, grateful you're listening today. Uh, so, Catherine Coles, I want to uh, pick, pick this up and... Uh, Maybe have you prepared to read uh, maybe the last page from chapter 21. Um, maybe that'll get us away from uh, the, the page differential, uh, just the end of chapter 21. Um, so th- this idea, examining the delicate balance that must exist in a successful marriage and a feminist life. And um, so your grandmother's, I guess one of her big complaints was that uh, your grandfather would leave on these long expeditions, leaving her behind. And there is, there is distance, both physical and emotional. Um, skip now uh, two generations forward. Uh, you write in the book that um, you don't know whether your grandmother or your mother married for love. You did. But your husband didn't know it at the time. Uh, he married restlessness. Right. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, I think Antarctica was probably the the biggest moment for us when I, when I said to him, "You actually don't have to understand why I want to go. You just have to understand that I want to go." <laughs> right. um, and and it wasn't easy for him. Uh, and neither one of us would say he let me go because it's not for him to let me go, but he. Uh, he tolerated my going, I think. Hmm. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. And then, so at the end of chapter 21, and, and in fact, this is uh, close to that uh, picture we were talking about of your, right. of your mother, right? Um, um, so I'll just read this part and then have you read a couple of paragraphs later. All along, you say, I believed his fussing had to do with gender, with his perception of my female vulnerability. Now I'm beginning to wonder if I'm projecting. And so you wonder about that. Mm-hmm. I want to, and then the paragraph, but, but when I tell my canniest friend, I wonder if you'd read that to the end of the chapter. But when I tell my canniest friend our disagreements have nothing to do with gender, she laughs and points out the obvious. He has felt entitled to object to my going. And though I've resented this and worked myself around it, I haven't complained outright. I think of my grandmother occupying herself, subjecting herself again. My mother keeping house and three children during the long, cold winter of my father's sabbatical. Myself, while Chris built his remarkable career, before he always wanted me along. This could take centuries more to sort. When I return, he's remodeled a room, torn out and replanted the entire landscape, found a fitness regime for me to learn, bought some new device for me to master, changes I keep time by, through which he exerts himself from a distance. This may be simply who he is, a leader of men. I stop reminding him he's not my boss and tell him instead that I'm not his employee. Meanwhile, like the phone I carry, all this shows me I have been kept constantly in mind. In truth, every change is thoughtful, meant to make me happy if not to make me stay put. 
It may take a few days, but unlike her, he forgives me. We settle back into something not quite the same as what I left. I want everything she had and everything I have too. Permission, what my mother tried to give me, though she, like Miriam, never had it. I have never required permission. Chris has never let me go, but he no longer stands exactly in my way. Miriam should have been someone's child before she was a mother. She should at least have had that. And my mother, whose child should she have been? Hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people can resonate uh, with, with that. Uh, you say this could take centuries more to <laughs> sort, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. um, but I, I want to put this in the framework of this interesting uh, sentence you wrote. You, you examine the delicate balance that must exist in a successful marriage and a feminist life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a marriage and a feminist life. Tell me about mm-hmm. that. Well, um, I, I, I sort of think that I became a feminist just by being who I am. Uh, I think that my grandmother might have become a feminist if she had been born in a different time, but feminism wasn't really open to her. And by the time I knew her, she had so internalized her life, even though she was furious about it until the day she died. Um, she'd so internalized Uh, her capitulation to gender roles that I don't think she could quite afford to be a feminist. But I think that for me, um, it was simply a matter of not being willing to negotiate away my freedom, even though one's life is a constant negotiation about freedoms and about, I mean, nobody, for example, in a marriage gets just to do what she wants to do, or indeed just to do what he wants to do. Um, I had a conversation with a high school boyfriend on the phone uh, a number of years ago. You know, you track people down and you call them up and say, what are you doing? How are you? And he said to me, you were really scary in high school. And I said, what are you talking about? And he said, you always did exactly what you wanted. And what I remember is always biding my time and waiting to be able to do what I wanted. I never felt that I was doing (laughs) what I wanted to do, and all I wanted was to become a grown-up and take my life into my own hands and become independent. But this is complicated uh, in a culture, in a life, in a marriage, in a family. Uh, tell me, before we close, I want to hear a couple of your adventures, uh, starting maybe with Indonesia. Your your grandparents lived in in uh, what is now known as Jakarta, which yeah. it, uh, at at the time was, uh, you know, almost bucolic. Now it's, what, 10 million people? Oh, man, it's crazy there. And in fact, the whole island of Java um, it is one great big traffic jam. It's really difficult to get anywhere, and especially since the, the roads are... Um, being used not only by cars but by pedestrians and horses and bicycles and um, and it's really hard to be orderly I think or actually have workable traffic laws in a situation where such competing interests are are um, fighting for the roads and so it's kind of a crazy place right now to be traveling and it was really interesting to see the distinction between what my grandmother described and the photographs that I was looking at and what Jakarta has become now. And, uh, you know, gender's always present, right? Uh, this idea of where's yeah. your husband? And uh, yeah. and it, this is too dangerous for a woman. Yeah. Um, so I went to Indonesia actually during the years shortly after 2001. I think it was 2002 that I was there and the State Department had a travel advisory that sort of went back and forth between an advisory and a strong advisory uh, against Americans going there. And Europe had a similar um, kind of advisory going on. And there was a period when I was traveling alone in Sumatra when for about 10 days I didn't see another Western face. Uh, And one of the things that you realize, especially living here in Utah, um, where so so many of so so much of the population is white. We don't realize how visible you are when you're marked racially in that kind of way. And I was marked not only by race but also by gender, by the fact that I was a female going everywhere by myself. And um, people were constantly asking me, "What are you doing here? Where's your husband? Why are you here? Where are you going?" Um, and I was constantly being asked to respond in my incredibly visible condition. 
Mm-hmm. I just want to mention this. Uh, there's a, one other point I want to get to here at the end of the conversation. I'll just mention this in passing. In Colombia, we went to, mm-hmm. to the International Poetry Festival in Medellin, founded, mm-hmm. you say, in the 90s in response to the violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're talking to a friend. You're talking about geopolitics, history of uh, America, um, United States, uh, in, in the view of, I guess, uh, Colombia's meddling and, and uh, oil and geopolitics. One of your friends uh, says, all North Americans are idiots, then a uh, too long pause and then accept you, she says. But, <laughs> so I found that passage <laughs> funny. Um, so, but let me, I don't want to spend the last uh, two or three minutes on this. Uh, so you're, uh, you're talking about your grandmother. You, you've gone to visit her in Florida. And you're admiring her. You say, I admire her driving, her heavy foot. She, she's always been a, a heavy-footed driver. Mm-hmm. Her muttered curses, refusal to give up her keys. And then this is a very poignant passage. She made her own way in a world still deeply unfriendly to women. She loved her children and resented being a mother. Like her mother and mine, like anyone, she succeeded and she failed. Yeah. And I think that is universal, isn't yeah. it? It's it's all of our fate. We're all succeeding and failing at the same time. And I, I guess I would argue that you don't ever actually really succeed unless you've failed a lot. Mm. And what part of this is maybe not as universal, at least to our times? What what part of that do you think, what frustrations did she maybe carry to her grave because of the times and uh, she was born in? Yeah, it's it's interesting because she did express her adventurous spirit, um, but she did it in within the sphere that was available to her as a woman. And so, while my grandfather's expression of his spirit spirit was, um, in a way, kind of heroic, although, you know, the Colombian passage about politics sort of reveals the ways in which that's quite questionable, but if, you know, he was absolutely a man and out there doing these manly things, uh, and that was very accepted, her range of expression for adventurousness was really within the domestic and the romantic sphere. And um, she she was a piece of work, and she was, she was not faithful, and she didn't stick with her marriage, and... Um, and she acted out, and she had a reputation uh, in the way that women get reputations, et cetera. She ended up happily married. She ended up in a in a good situation. But all of her expressions of her spirit um, were seen by the culture as being inappropriate. And I think that that's a tragedy. Hmm. Just about a minute left. I wonder... What you take away from this whole experience, this uh, diving into your mm-hmm. grandmother's life and uh, examining your own life, uh, focusing on, on you and, and your times, what, uh, what, what's the top takeaway? It, well, more than anything, I would say it makes me feel how lucky I am, how fortunate I was to be as supported as I am by my parents. And um, I want to make this absolutely clear also by my husband, who has always valued my work and my career equally with his own and has always thought that what I do is as important as as what he does. So I have been incredibly fortunate in both my upbringing and in my marriage. But I also really recognize and I see my young 20-year-old students really struggling with this um, this question of how they are meant to express themselves and be in the world. The book is Look Both Ways, A Double Journey Along My Grandmother's Far-Flung Path. The author, Catherine Coles, has joined us from KCPW Studios in Salt Lake City. Catherine Coles, it's always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Jen Ashton. Haggis. You've heard of it, though if you're like me, that's about as far as it goes. Previously, I had a faint awareness of this side dish common in Scotland. As I learned more about ancestors hailing from the old country, my curiosity grew. However, upon catching snippets about heart and liver stuffed into sheep's stomach, that curiosity waned. Still, during a recent trip to Edinburgh and the Highlands in Scotland, I determined to give haggis a go. I even consulted with native Scots to get the lowdown on the ancient recipe. Here's what Stephen, our excellent tour bus guide, had to say. 
haggis is our national dish. Now, normally you would have haggis with mixed with potatoes and turnip. We call it haggis, tatties and neat. The taste of haggis itself, first of all, it's oatmeal. Most of it is oatmeal. It comes from many centuries ago. Um, people didn't want to waste any part of the animal. So traditionally you would um, mix things that we traditionally would describe as awful. Um, so the heart, the lungs, the liver, things that we might throw away. They would cut that up and cook it with the haggis, which I know doesn't sound on first hearing particularly tasty. Upon arriving in Edinburgh, opportunities to try the national dish were plentiful, with a full Scottish breakfast headlining the menu at our hotel. While my husband ordered it without reservation, I needed a practice run, opting for the vegetarian haggis and wondering what in the world would show up on my plate. We both learned a full Scottish breakfast is a close cousin to a full English breakfast of back bacon, eggs, grilled tomatoes, fried mushrooms, and bangers or sausages. Oh, and black pudding, though that could be a discussion for another day. The Scottish version simply adds a round or dollop of haggis for good measure. My vegetarian haggis proved innocuous, even mostly agreeable, as if rough-cut oatmeal met up with a bag of mixed vegetables for a pre-dawn tango in the blender. Though compared to its omnivorous counterpart on my husband's plate, the vegetarian haggis appeared pale and soggy, like it just docked ashore after a stormy crossing on one of the many lochs or lakes nearby. Not sure I could stomach an entire serving of traditional haggis, I reached across the table to lift a forkful of my husband's breakfast. The color was more robust, reddish brown with bits of oatmeal and onion. The appearance, somewhat like cooked rice, if you mixed it with a bottle of hearty barbecue sauce, I took a bite. So actually when most people taste haggis, if they've not been put off by the description, and you shouldn't be, you will get a kind of spicy taste to it. But not in a hot spice, not in a curry kind of spicy. But most people will say, and that's kind of surprising to them. So it's kind of spicy. And the texture, um, if you've had porridge, maybe a little like that, kind of a rough texture. Because it's mostly oats you're eating. Stephen is right. When I tasted haggis, the first thought that crossed my mind was savory mush, though there's quickly more to it. While I did not expect the soft and crumbly consistency, the meld of onion, oats, spices, and meat quickly filled in with a deep, earthy, and nutty richness. Since it's ground, you don't remain focused on the organ component, though, like a usual American, I thought about it just enough to be content with a single bite. It's funny how we wince at unfamiliar foods while we devour hot dogs between innings at the baseball stadium and pass bags of chicken nuggets to our toddlers in the back seat of the car. In fact, learning about the National Dish of Scotland made me wonder what comes to mind when they think of food in the United States. Well, huge portions is <laughs> the first thing I think of. Never order a starter. He's got a point. Who needs an appetizer when meals at American restaurants seem portioned to last a week? Stephen also specifically mentioned New York strip steak and great seafood in California and other coastal states he's visited. But he remained flummoxed by the sheer volume. Enormous portions. Why do you need to serve so much? <laughs> <laughs> Not that I was complaining. I did heal. This is Jen Ashton for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, and also heard at upr.org.